You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Good morning, church. Yes, it is suspicious. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. I want to say thank you uh, to Mark. I echo his comments. Coming to Southern within the last year, uh, he has become a good friend, and I love being able to work with him in the doctoral office and all the good work he's doing there. I also want to thank Dr. Foster. I know he was in the earlier. um, He's become a, a good friend as well. And uh, I thank you, too, to your pastor, Pastor Clark, for the opportunity to come and to share with you. And uh, I know it is a little suspicious, but I hope that uh, working through Revelation 12 this Christmas season may be profitable for you and for all of us. Several years ago, while I was living in Texas, my children uh, were younger than they are now, I decided to venture into the world of, Christian, of Christmas lawn ornaments. We had not uh, had any lawn ornaments up to this point, but I decided if I was going to get lawn ornaments, it was go big, right? I wanted uh, them to be seen. And I especially wanted a light-up nativity set. I had seen these. And a, a plastic one that, you know, blew up would not be, be good enough. I wanted a hardy, plastic, giant, light-up nativity set. I wanted it to be light-up evangelism. I wanted people to drive by and see, uh, I mean, Christmas vacation kind of light up, right? But unfortunately, I didn't get a big one, but I did get one that lit up and uh, gathered my children, and we proudly put up our Mary, our Joseph, and our baby Jesus, Uh, put them, positioned them on the front lawn, all stood in admiration, and then went to bed. In the middle of the night, I woke up to the sound of wind hitting the window. And it was then, as I was staring at the ceiling, that I realized I might have made a couple mistakes. First off, the plastic lawn ornaments were hollow, and I knew it would not take too much wind to pick up the plastic items and whip them around. I also knew, and this is the crucial step, that I had not in any way anchored them to the ground. And so I jump out of bed, race outside, and walk upon the scene. There is Joseph on his side, his cord stretched tight, bouncing up and down. I'm able to get Joseph and and wrangle him inside. Baby Jesus, who was in a square... Uh, uh, in a manger that was hollow, was also taught and bouncing like this, almost like I could have thrown it like a frisbee. And thankfully, I rescued baby Jesus and brought him in, Joseph and Jesus together again. But Mary, Mary was nowhere to be found. And there I am, I'm almost embarrassed to admit it, uh, in my sleeping shorts with no shirt and no shoes, Pondering, what do I do at this moment? I mean, I know I could not even go inside Walmart at this, in this condition, but I wondered what on earth I could do. And I knew that the wind was going to blow the, ornament, or the lawn ornament away, so I had a decision to make. Now, I admit I am a good Protestant Southern Baptist, uh, and I pondered how essential Mary was to this whole thing, right? Could I just have Joseph and Jesus up there? You know, would that be enough? And yes, uh, you know, uh, I decided that was not enough. Mary is essential. She is, as Scripture says, highly favored, right? 
we just, we just celebrate it. I did not know, but we celebrate it with the, uh, with the Merry Advent candle. So, uh, with, with just shorts on, no shirt and shoes, I take off gingerly, you know, sprinting down the sidewalk on my tippy toes, trying to run as fast as I can in search of Mary. Thankfully, about five houses down, she had become lodged underneath a car and was right in front of the tire, a little scratched up, a little banged up, but, uh, but still lit up eventually. And I rescued her, put her under my arm, and reunited the family together again. And I learned my lesson. The ap- point of application this morning is always anchor your lawn ornaments. This is key. This is key. Over the years, I love Christmas time. Four kiddos, oldest is now in middle school, and I've gotten to spend a lot of Christmases together. I love it, as I know you do too. The lights, the songs, the music, the food. It is all so wonderful and so good. But every once in a while, around Christmas season, I metaphorically am reminded that sometimes we find ourselves running down the street. We found ourselves in the midst of challenges, in the midst of heartaches, in the midst of struggles. We found ourselves in the midst of a holiday season that is not altogether joyful. And those times remind us of maybe the people we've lost or the sins that so easily entangle us or the others around us. And that tension reminds me that we live between Christ's two advents. Theologically speaking, we live in in-between times, in the midst of the already and the not yet. We celebrate every year that Christmas has come, but we are also reminded as the apostles were in Acts chapter 1 verse 10 when they stood there and they watched the Lord ascend and the angels looked at them and said, just as you have seen him go, you will see him come again. So go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so we live in these in-between times. As Mark said, I, uh, this has become a reality for my family, uh, especially. We have lived in Texas most of my life, except for a little stint in Scotland when I was working on my doctoral work. But I have grown up and born and raised in Texas up until about a year or so ago. And I am both from Texas and I am a Texan. Those are two different things, two key things you must hold together. When I say I'm a Texan, I am a barbecue-loving, fountain Dr. Pepper-loving. This is key. Not Dr. Pepper in a plastic bottle that's been processed. You need a giant water burger tub that you put underneath the ice machine and then underneath the Dr. Pepper. And the goodness that flows down and mixes the syrup That is Fountain Dr. Pepper. It was invented in Waco, where I did my undergraduate work at the National NCAA National Championship Baylor Bears, right? Got to get that one in, right? Uh, I'm a Texan. But a few years ago, and for Mark, yes, I also love Texas country. A little Lyle Lovett, a little Pat Green, Robert O'Keefe. A few years ago, or last year, uh, my family transitioned to Kentucky. My sister lives in Paducah, so I had been here many times. However, 
I never lived here. And I think it was about last fall when the leaves started to turn for the first time and I got to drive the roads around Louisville for the first time and see these things. I don't know if you've seen them. They're called trees. I've discovered them. It's beautiful. Even the drive out here from 265 this morning, just seeing the rock out, the outcroppings, the rocks, the trees, a blanket of frost that covered the ground. Kentucky is all right. This is a good place to be. And my kids who have come to new schools, new students, new, uh, new church, new everything have slowly settled in. And we discovered that both the challenge of living in between times and the joy that is to be found in community and amid the people of God in these in-between times. Some of you right now are living in between times. You're waiting to hear about a diagnosis. You're waiting to hear if your marriage is going to work out. You're waiting to hear if your children are going to come home. In between times can be very, very challenging. And the Christmas season, I think, is the, one of the most amazing times at which we see these in between times come together during this Christmas season. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to read Revelation 12. Follow along with me as I read. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head with seven diadems, and he swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. The child was caught up to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, and he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent of old who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them night, day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to you on earth and the sea. For the devil has come down in great wrath because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw had been thrown down, he pursued the woman who had been given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings, a great eagle, so she, she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is, is to be nourished for times, time, and half a time. And the serpent poured forth water like a river out of his mouth, and after the woman to sweep away with the flood, but the earth came to help 
to the help of the woman. And the earth was opened in its mouth, and it swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth. Then the dragon became furious, and the woman went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood in the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is Christmas, right? We should be reading Luke or Matthew, maybe even Mark. Well, not Mark. Uh, It begins with John the Baptist, but maybe John. Maybe John would be good. Why? Why Revelation chapter 12? When we read Revelation 12, we enter into a world where we see war and struggle, a spiritual struggle that's happening. Every year at Christmas Eve, I gather with my family and we read Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel is wonderful. (laughs) It's joyful. Everyone's singing. You read through Luke. I mean, the angels are singing, Mary's singing, everyone's happy, right? They're celebrating, and there is every reason to celebrate because Christ has come. Revelation gives us what I think is the other side of the story begins to see things from God's perspective, that the reality of Christ's coming means the world in which Christ enters is not a world that is entirely at peace, but a world where sin, death, and the devil rage and rear their ugly heads. I didn't know uh, what was going to happen, obviously, a few days ago in the western part of our state. I didn't know that the tornado was going to come through. And some people, there are many, who no doubt have relatives, family, friends who have been impacted. Uh, As I mentioned, I think my sister lives in Paducah, and her husband works at the hospital there, and I even called her yesterday. Check on them uh, to see how they were doing, and she related how many were coming through and how the hospital workers and the first responders. Yes, Christmas is a time to be joyful, time to gather with your family. But Revelation 12 reminds us that the world in which Christ entered is a world that is broken by sin, and it is the very world in which He came to save. But when you open up to this passage, there are three people we need to identify. First is the woman. You see the description of the woman. She is clothed with the sun, the moon, and the stars. We'll talk about that in a second. I think all of this points to the woman representing the nation of Israel, out of whom the Messiah is going to be born. The second person is the child who is born, who is identified with Psalm chapter 2, which is one of the most important messianic psalms in the Psalter. And then the last is this dragon that Revelation 12, 9 identifies for us as that serpent of old, Satan, who has been deceiving God's people from the very beginning. But first, Revelation 12, 1, it says, A great sign appeared to heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon, the stars under her feet, and on her uh, head was a crown of 12 stars. I think both this image typifies, again, the nation of Israel out of whom the Messiah will come. And I think specifically in almost a telescoping way, it of course alludes to Mary who will give birth to the Messiah. I think Scripture has both in view. Parenthetically, I know if you have Catholic friends, they tend to use this very passage here to elevate Mary 
actually begin to include Mary above what Scripture teaches. That is not what I think Scripture teaches, but I think it does identify generally the nation with the moon and the stars. But then Mary, I think, is ultimately in view too, as well as the one through whom the Messiah is going to come. If you go to the Old Testament, no doubt you might know the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, where God promises Abraham, his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Or the image of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis 37, where Joseph has a dream and the people of the nation image as moon and stars are bowing down to him. Those are just two of a whole list of places where no doubt John has in mind, this is the nation of Israel from whom the Messiah is going to come. But I think it also represents Mary who is giving birth to this son who is going to rule the nations. You see right here in this little verse, there is so much biblical theology packed into and assumed right here. We could go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent is prowling around deceiving them. And after they are deceived, in Genesis 3.15, uh, uh, God promises that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent will bite his heel. So we know from Genesis that this seed of the woman is coming. We could fast forward all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Davidic covenant where God promises David that someone in David's line will sit on David's throne forever. The promise God made to David. We could go to Isaiah 7.14 and know that this one who is going to be born in David's line is going to be born of a virgin. And he is going to be God with us. We could go to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where we know that this one is going to be so great that the government is going to sit on his shoulders. We go to Micah chapter 2, where we know that this one is going to be born in Bethlehem. Like crumbs along a path leading us to our destination, these passages build and build and build, and they form the beautiful theological biblical backdrop to Revelation 12 and the birth of of this messianic king who is coming. But notice what it says in verse 2. She was pregnant and she was crying out in birth planes and in agony and about to give birth. We enter this great cosmic maternity ward, this great cosmic stable where we find that this child is going to be born and that the nation, I think again, the nation is in view, is experiencing the hardship and the suffering, the people of God suffering. And it's through that suffering and through that pain that this child is going to come. I've had the privilege of, uh, of, of I, I said participating in the first service and recognized that that was not what I meant to say, of being there when my four children were born. Um, I was there, my first two were actually born in Scotland while I was working on my PhD and doing my doctoral work which, uh, yeah, was a little crazy. The first one, we had to uh, hitch a ride with a friend who had a car because we couldn't afford one. I was a poor doctoral student. And uh, if you've ever been to the UK, you know these things called roundabouts. And you know twisty, windy roads. And there I am in the back seat with my wife in contractions trying to comfort her. 
as we go all over Scotland trying to make our way to the hospital. When the second one is born, running the same curvy roads, we had a second obstacle. It's a giant flock of sheep that I had to honk and encourage out of the way. My wife encouraging me to encourage them, right, to get out of the way. I was in the middle of them honking, move, right? We make our way to the hospital, and both, both for the birth of my first and my second, we had good Scottish midwives who, if you've ever been um, spoken to with a thick Scottish accent, you know that it immediately makes you do whatever that person asks you to do. And uh, so I had Scottish midwives uh, informing me and directing me, and uh, I did whatever they told me. And I'll never forget the, uh, the children in, in my family, uh, much to my wife's dismay, were rather large. They were all almost 10 pounds, 9, 10 pounds. And when, when they were born, the midwife, I'll never forget her holding my second daughter, bouncing her up and down, going, boy, I'm glad I had my porridge this morning. I said, me too. <laughs> me too. I'm glad. But we know the pain of childbirth. We know the pain and yet the joy that comes. We know when Revelation describes this scene of a woman in labor, it points to the suffering that God's people are experiencing and the hope of the Messiah that is to be born. And then there's Revelation chapter chapter 12, verse 3. Another sign appeared, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head with seven diadems. When our Lord enters this world, the scene gets crazier. When our Lord enters this world, He comes to a world that evil reigns and sin, death, and the devil rear their ugly heads. A ferocious dragon is poised there to devour Him. It reminds me of the scenes out of Chronicles of Narnia for Lord of the Rings. As I was thinking about this sermon, I was reminded of C.S. Lewis in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader where Eustace turns into a dragon out of his greed. If you remember in that account, he's lured into the cave out of the treasure on which the dragon sleeps. He, he falls asleep there and he himself turns into a dragon. Lewis writes those haunting words describing, uh, the, uh, describing what happened to Eustace. He said, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart, he became a dragon himself. Only when Aslan came and slowly picked off the scales did Eustace find redemption. But throughout the Scriptures, images of monsters, of dragons, of of, of violent animals are always used to describe the nations that are oppressing God's people. They're used in Genesis to describe Pharaoh in Egypt. They're used throughout the Old Testament and the prophets to point to those nations and the political entities that come to destroy God's people. And I think this ultimately applies both to the Old Testament and to those who have come afterwards. Revelation 12:4, I think, is a haunting verse. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. I was, many years ago, when I was reading this passage, I had the bright idea that I would get on Amazon and find a red dragon and bring it to my house and put it in my nativity set. 
So it has become kind of a running joke in our, in our house that I have. I couldn't find one with seven heads, but I found one with one head, and I found one that was red. Of course, the seven heads represents the completeness of evil that is embodied in this serpent, in this Satan. And of course, the redness is the oppressiveness that all are describing there, opposing God's people. So I got the dragon and I put it in, and, and my kids in, 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 inherently did not like this. And so a game, we started this game where they would take the dragon, they would steal it, and they would run and hide it. And then I'd have to find it, and I'd bring it back, and I'd put it in. And they'd yell, no! I even pondered, I had a fleeting ponder where I thought about a lawn ornament of a giant seven-headed dragon that I might put right next to the nativity set. I'm not sure that would sell, but I just sort of had this fleeting thought uh, about that. But you notice with my kids, there's something wrong about a dragon in a nativity set. They inherently knew there is something not right about that. There is something not right about sin, death, and the devil that rear their ugly heads. There is something not right. And there is. When I thought about this passage, immediately what came to mind when you talk about that serpent of old was Genesis chapter 3, where there is the serpent lurking, ready to devour the first couple and deceive them. Or another passage came to mind, Matthew chapter 2 where you have Herod, the king. I mentioned that we read Luke's gospel at Christmas time. I remember several years ago where I got the bright idea, instead of reading Luke's gospel on Christmas, we ought to read Matthew's gospel on Christmas. And we started reading Matthew, and everything was going great until we hit Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. And you have Herod, the king, who in his rage, in his vileness, and in his evilness, seeks out to destroy children while he's looking to kill the Messiah. And you see that the world in which the Messiah came is a world that is broken. This is not away in a manger with a baby gently sleeping and cows lowing and the angels happily and, and the animals happily swaying back and forth. This is not a silent night where all is calm and all is bright and everyone's sleeping in heavenly peace. There are dragons! Big ones. They're red. They're ferocious. Sin. That sin that so easily entangles us. Whether we recognize it or not, we know this side of Christmas. I know a few years ago, when I was growing up, I would always hear every Christmas the song produced in 1990 by Bob Rivers called The Twelve Pains of Christmas, right? Not the twelve days of Christmas, the twelve pains of Christmas. And of course, what are the twelve pains of Christmas? Uh, in Rivers' song, they are uh, a finding a Christmas tree. And when it comes to Christmas tree, I am a traditionalist. This year, we started new traditions of going to Huber's farm and chopping down the Christmas tree, right? I want my boys lying on the ground in the dirt, covered in sap, with that saw, hacking away, mangling the base of the Christmas tree. Uh, even at, when we were cutting, 
chopping it down, this, uh, this gentleman walked by with an electric saw and said, you want some help? I said, no. This is the way we do it. We chop this thing down and we haul it home. We put it up. But you know, the, it's, it's brutal trying to find one. This one has too many leaves. This one's too tall. Well, we can position it in the corner just like this. Oh, we can get it stand up. It kind of leans this way. Same happens when you start putting up the Christmas lights, which is second. Or in River's account, the 12 pains of Christmas include facing our in-laws. I'm not going to touch that one. Leave that alone. Sending Christmas cards, five months of bills, screaming kids, the awful, terrible, dreadful words, batteries not included. We know this side of Christmas. We know the joy of Christmas, the peace of Christmas, the traditions, the wonder, the music, but we also know. We know when we sit down at the dinner table, the people who aren't there that we've lost. We're reminded Maybe when we lose our jobs, when pandemics hit, when cities rage, when people suffer, we know this side of the story as well. We know that sin, death, and the devil rear their ugly heads and continue to oppress and afflict God's people. But there's Revelation 12.5. Revelation 12.5. She gave birth to a male child who was to rule the nation's with a rod of iron. Revelation, uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. Psalm chapter 2, if you know the Psalter, is one of the most important messianic psalms. In fact, Psalm 2 on a whole is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other psalm. Psalm 2 is quoted at the Lord's baptism. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Psalm 2 is quoted here and in Revelation 6. It's quoted in Acts chapter 4. Why do the nations rage and the peoples devise a vain thing? It's quoted at the Lord's crucifixion, at his baptism. And now here it's quoted in anticipation of his second coming. When Christ will come again, judge the living and the dead, and establish a kingdom that will have no end. That dragon was poised to stop him. But he was no match for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This child who was come was going to rule the nations as the Davidic king. This Christmas, there's a few songs I keep going back to because of what they teach us about who Christ is. One we just sang that I love, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail uh, this incarnate deity, pleased as men with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Or the traditional second verse of O Come All Ye Faithful. God of God, light of light eternal, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created, O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord, the one born in Bethlehem, is God with us. And evil and dragons and sin and death are no match for him. No match for him. He will reign. So finally, when we look at the end of Revelation 12, verses 7 through 17, we find that the accuser is conquered, but he fights on. The accuser is conquered, but he fights on. With my boys, I play a game that they love. They're still young enough. I know they're getting older where they're going to eventually 
take me down, but I hold them down and I tickle them, of course, until they say, I give, I give, my dad is the best, you win. Then I let them go and they jump up and say, just kidding, just kidding. And they run away and they do it again and again. Satan has been pinned down. Sin, death, and the devil have been destroyed. But he fights on and he rages on. See, for example, Revelation 12, 8. There was no longer any place for for him in heaven. He was beaten. The voice from heaven in verse 10 proclaims salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. Take heart. Salvation has been accomplished, though the world may look broken. We do not live in fear, but we live in hope. We know with Revelation 12, 13, he pursued the woman who was giving birth to this child. And 12, the, uh, verse 17, the dragon became furious and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. All those who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of God. And this is where this passage comes and hits home. He comes to make war with those, the people of God, who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of God. I have the privilege of the seminary of teaching church history, and I have the privilege of walking through the early Christian martyrdom accounts. One of the earliest accounts we have of the martyrs of Lyon and Vienne, there's a letter written in 177 AD that recounts the brutal early Christian martyrdoms. You know what book of the Bible is cited more often in the martyrdom accounts than any book? It's the book of Revelation, because they wanted to be reminded that Christ will come again in glory in the midst of suffering, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of challenges that we are all facing. We live in hope that Christ is going to come. He's going to ultimately put down sin, death, and the devil, and he's going to establish a kingdom that has no end. We do live in in in-between times. We live in the hope and the joy and the wonder of Christ's first birth. And we live in hope and anticipation of His second. A lot of Christmas hymns, you know, are actually written to emphasize this tension. One in particular, Joy to the World, is actually written not necessarily to be a Christmas song, but to be a song about the second coming. But it's wonderful. We sing it at Christmas. And when you sing Joy to the World, you can think both joy that Christ has come and joy that he is coming again. Listen to these words. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin or sorrow reign. No thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Revelation 12 reminds us that it may seem like the world is broken but we can still proclaim joy to the world.
Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.